Welcome to the Entrepreneur Escape Pod. I'm your host, Melissa Rittenhouse. Entrepreneur Escape Pod is for anyone interested in learning about the multitude of ways to create a career for yourself outside of a traditional nine to five, as well as anyone who is inspired to learn from others and take action towards their goals. In each episode, I interview a wide variety of people from entrepreneurs to artists to digital nomads so we can learn from them and expand our perspective on work in the digital age. I'll also share with you my thoughts on any newsworthy topics related to remote work, tech, digital entrepreneurs and more. If you're ready to feel inspired, let's dive into Entrepreneur Escape Pod. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Entrepreneur Escape Pod. I'm your host, Melissa. In today's episode, we have an amazing guest named Samantha Bradshaw. She's a lawyer and the owner of Inline Legal, the first virtual legal firm, online business legal firm. And in this episode, we just talk a lot about what it's like starting a fully remote law firm and what that process was like. And we dive into a lot of things about remote work and kind of the legal aspects to being a digital nomad and working remotely. We also dive into trademarks and why they're so important for online business owners to have, not just online, but any business owner. And then uh, last but not least, we get into contracts and what contracts are the most important ones for online businesses to have and what to look for in when you're signing contracts and also, how to prevent any any kind of problems from people doing things like copying your material or stealing your name and likeness and all of that. So um, if you're someone with an online business and you have any legal questions, this is definitely the episode for you. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm here with Samantha Bradshaw from Inline Legal. Um, so hi, Samantha. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, of course. So um, I was really interested to talk to you because you are a lawyer. And I I guess um, just to kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your legal background and what kind of clients you worked with before starting your own online law firm. Sure. So um, I am currently a small business and intellectual property lawyer. And I founded the only 100% virtual Virginia licensed law firm that keeps creatives out of the courtroom and in the studio with a whole bunch of things to help you do that. Um, but before this, I actually I worked in Lebanon as a foreign of counsel to a bunch of very bigwig corporate international companies uh, trying to either do business in Lebanon or to for Lebanese companies trying to get uh, abroad and start spreading and, and growing. Wow, that's so cool. How'd you uh, end up doing that kind of work? Um, you know, like a lot of things, a little bit of grit and a bit of stroke of a dumb luck. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I bet you that that must be challenging too. kind of. I, well, I guess I think if you could help people, you know, from Lebanon kind of bring their businesses internationally, I feel like working with businesses in the U.S. probably is a little bit easier in some ways. It does. It does feel a little bit easier. There's, it's a little bit less involved, um, but it's also it's it's a lot more satisfying to to work with those smaller businesses. Um, my favorite clients when I was doing the kind of big goal stuff were the ones that had less than a hundred employees because they could actually tell me the names of who they were working with and what they wanted to do. Yeah. Whereas anybody above that was just like, "How do we get our tax numbers down?" I'm like, "Okay, yeah. I mean, we can figure that out." But it was just, it was less rewarding, less satisfying. Totally. And I bet you too, I don't know um, now if you work with anyone who's like, um, I know that's a big issue with think, people who are digital nomads and those kinds of creative entrepreneurs who are maybe like mm-hmm. living abroad is, I know sometimes they have issues with, um, I don't know, just kind of figuring out like, yeah, like the tax, the taxes when you're 
working internationally, but still a citizen of another country. And then kind of all the ins and outs of like operating kind of a business in another country, but it's online. So there's these gray areas. So there's a whole lot of gray areas. (laughs) Um, And that's definitely that's part of what I, I did in Lebanon, because we had so many tech companies that wanted to be headquartered in the US. But of course, they had no connection to the US other than simply wanting to be headquartered there. It helped them get venture funding and stuff like that. It made things a lot easier. Um, I myself had to figure out the tax situation when I was in Lebanon because I, I was also abroad and uh, I'm abroad again. I'm actually, I'm doing this from Brazil. Oh, so wow. I spent my time between Brazil and Virginia. Um, but the vast majority of the year I am actually over there. Oh, so it's that... the, the gray zone is real. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. I didn't know that you were in Brazil. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask too, I guess one thing with having an online law firm, I was wondering how the, how that kind of works and how you're able to take it fully online. Um, because I know that's one thing with lawyers too, they're oftentimes they're barred in a certain state. So yeah. how, how did you manage to have a firm that's fully online? So the way that, that I've done it is, is two ways for the things that have to be state specific. Uh, I focus on working with folks in Virginia for the things that don't have to be state specific. I work with anybody across the U.S. So how that splits up is essentially uh, intellectual property, trademark and copyright law and federal tax. The things that I was doing back in Lebanon for the big wig clients anyway, these are all federal law issues. So a lawyer that's licensed in any state can help somebody in any state if that's all they're working on. Um, so I help folks all over the U S with that kind of work. And then when it comes to the very specific, like labor laws and contracts and all of that kind of thing, I focus on Virginia businesses. Um, but when I talk about what I do, although there may be a slight change from state to state, that information is still helpful to people, um, even if it is Virginia specific. So try to have those conversations whenever I can. Nice. Yeah. Um, I guess too, how do you see, do you think there will be more opportunities maybe for people to practice in multiple states or kind of get away from the gray area situations with technology? <laughs> I mean, I almost ask you this personally, just because with like a lot of professions too, like that are licensed in certain states, it's like now in this digital age, it's kind of, um, I don't know. I feel like it's maybe you see sometime down the line, there being maybe a way to make it easier for people to operate in multiple states. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if anyone listening has a, a, a friend, a family member, that's maybe you don't know a lawyer, because although there's a lot of us, it's like disconcerting. There shouldn't be that many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've got a friend or family member who is a nurse, a teacher, a hairstylist, We all have state specific regulations because of the way that the U.S. is set up on things that don't really make a lot of sense. Like if you can curl hair in Oregon, you can curl hair in Virginia and you can curl hair in Texas. I don't think it's going to change too much. Just the humidity level doesn't force you to have to go get a new a new registration, a new license. Um, But we are seeing there were pushes for it before, but really only from the younger younger lawyers within the American Bar Association to kind of nationalize how things operate because things are so similar. Um, but one of those, you know, everyone trying to find silver linings with the pandemic, one of those silver linings is suddenly all of these lawyers were at home. They weren't in their offices. They weren't at their, nat- their registered addresses. They were having to operate virtually which meant all of our ethical associations that force us to do this state-by-state thing 
suddenly had to reevaluate the actual use of technology and bring us, you know, out of the 60s and the 70s. Um, they only brought us into like the early 2000s. We're still working <laughs> on the last two decades. But there's definitely there's an active push to to bring things together and to have like one exam for the whole U.S. instead of one for every state, which would allow us to get closer to that point on those areas that aren't federally recognized law or federally uh, issued law. So we could start helping people outside of our jurisdictions, outside of our states, because when you're for example, I have clients in the northern Virginia, D.C. area. And it doesn't connect to them that if they pick up and move their businesses 10 miles down the road and they happen to cross state line, that I may not be able to help them. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, are maybe some kind of, I don't know, like different, maybe like a, a different type of exam you could take if you're already barred in one state and want to add another state. Because I know too, like with things like insurance licenses, um, if you're, have a license in one state, oftentimes you could just pay to have a license in another state, I guess. Or, I don't know. I, I don't know if you have to take exams. Sometimes the people just pay. But I, I know like you were saying too, like, uh, yeah, like I knew a therapist as well who they, they couldn't work with clients uh, outside mm-hmm. of the state. Like you could work with people virtually, but you only virtually in your state. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's Which, like, a, so crazy. I didn't know that that was a thing, but yeah. yeah. And some, some states are getting better about it. Florida, for example, um, I they are typically faster on the technology uptake. Uh, Virginia's the old commonwealth. They, they're a little, they can be stuck in their ways in a lot of things. Uh, but Florida is making some active changes for that. And we do have some agreements between individual states, mm-hmm. um, that you can waive in you to like skip the exam if you wanted to, uh, that you can just pay some extra money, uh, that you can do this, but all of those things increase our expenses, which we then have to pass on to clients. Yeah. Right. If we have licensing fees that are thousands of dollars a year because we wanted to become licensed in five states to be available to those folks. That's something that we have to account for in our pricing. And that's, that's also not a, it doesn't encourage access to justice in any kind of way. Um, but we're working on it. There's baby steps, but it's, it's going to, it's moved a lot in the past two years, much further than it has in the past 15. Yeah. Uh, but we still got a ways to go. Okay. Well, hopefully, hopefully that, uh, I don't know, hopefully there's more, change in that area because I feel like, yeah. uh, you know, as time goes on, it's it's going to only make more sense to be available virtually to as many, I mean, at least more people. I don't know about as many people as possible. But um, so with starting an online, a totally online virtual law firm, um, did you have an ideal client in mind when you started this business or did that kind of develop over time? So I definitely had uh, a pretty a pretty good start of where I wanted to go. Fortunately, when you decide to start an online business, uh, it becomes very clear that you have to work with people that have a certain level of like technology competence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that made it really easy to be able to cut out the person who wanted to drive to an office, who wanted to sit in traffic, who wanted to sit in a fancy room with like big legal books behind me to have that in-person conversation Instead of clicking on a link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I started this back before the pandemic hit. So Zoom wasn't a huge thing yet. I was using Google Meet. Still am, actually. I, I like that ecosystem a lot. Um, and if somebody wasn't 
up for being able to click on that link and hold their phone in front of them or get in front of their computer and have that conversation there, um, then that was really easy to make sure of like, okay, definitely only working with people who can fit into that bubble. Um, and then I knew from the folks that I worked with back in Lebanon that I wanted to stay with those small businesses that were actually doing something that I felt was cool. I wanted to support people that were doing cool stuff. Nice. Right. And in, in some very selfish way, I could feel like, oh, but I did a part of that. <laughs> totally. Um, so that that made it easier to kind of pin those two things together uh, to really focus on like service based businesses, first time gener- first generation entrepreneurs. Um, and they're just they're a lot of fun. Yeah. Totally. And I feel like too, with there's obviously been like um, kind of, a, I think an increase in people wanting to do online businesses or work remotely and work online. And um, yeah, I mean, like we were just saying, there's a lot of gray areas too with what that come with that. And so I feel like there's definitely a need for legal advice within the creative community <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And it's, and I think part of the issue with, with legal advice in general is, I mean, much like, trying to figure out if I could have a virtual law firm in the first place, uh, according to my ethics things, this conversation about can a lawyer help you across state lines? And like, what are these rules that prevent us from doing it? My industry is so far in the past because we're so conservative typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and like conservative in risk, conservative in, 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 you know, how we operate businesses. Like we, we look to old models. We don't come up with new ones. Mm-hmm as an industry. Yeah. And that drove me crazy. I I couldn't deal with it. I was like, why can't we do it this way? And I love creatives because that's all they do. They're like, but why can't I do it this way? And the old school lawyers will be like, well, because you can't, right? Like, (laughs) like the kid being like, but mommy, why can't I? Because I said so. No, that's a terrible answer. (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, like, um, I mean, as kind of like the the world of entrepreneurship changes with technology, it's they're going to have to have legal advice that sort of c- catches up with it in a way. Because like, yeah. like we were just saying, like if you're doing something like living in Brazil, but you're a U.S. citizen, it's like you, there, you know, there's going to be people that need advice in those circumstances. And that's only yeah. going to get more common, I think, with <laughs> with technology. I, yeah, so. I would definitely agree. And the I don't I don't know how much you've been following, but I, I've been following this endlessly because I, I love it because of the pandemic and every, and so many, uh, uh, oh, uh, tourism industries really getting kind of shut down by, you know, the, the, the border lockdowns and the lack of flights and all that kind of stuff. A ton of countries realize that digital nomads are, are actually great residents. Um, and that if you give them a visa, they are happy to pay taxes to be able to have the privilege to come live in some beautiful places. Uh, so I know Italy should be launching theirs next year, which is very exciting. Uh, there's a ton of islands in the Caribbean that have put together packages, quite a few over in Southeast Asia as well. Um, and quite a few really beautiful places in like Eastern Europe and like at Croatia put together a really good one that are all really affordable. Um, and I, I think give people who otherwise may not have been sure how to to use their business to kind of have that location freedom it gives them a step-by-step process to be able to do it yeah i think that's amazing and yeah the laws are gonna have to catch up 
Totally. Yeah. I have like, I have read a little bit about that. I made some Instagram videos kind of about that too, with like, it's just like yeah. little quick things like, yeah, like five European countries that uh-huh, have digital motorcycles. And then one for tropical, like Caribbean countries. Although I put Mexico in there, which isn't technically like in the Caribbean, but I was like, it's, yeah, it's, it's close got by. Caribbean waters on the beach. <laughs> fine. It's fine. But yeah. And I know a lot of people too who are not a lot, but a few who are kind of more like expats, like in, and they're mostly in Southeast Asia, actually. In, yeah. Like, in Bangkok and places like that. So, because that's historically that's been an easier place to go, kind of live that lifestyle. But I mean these these people are growing, um, and they're it's spreading beyond the typical industries of like copy editor and photographer, right? I, I mean, I'm 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 proof of that, right? I have a law firm. It's coming from Brazil, seventy five percent of the year. Uh, and nobody needs to know the difference other than if they hear like the McCall's outside because yeah. <laughs> sorry, they happen sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And- um, it's great though. I-, I love seeing that everybody's kind of taking this opportunity to spread around a little bit more. I think it's really good. Totally. Because I know like when I was reading about it with Italy, one of the reasons why they wanted to do it was because, and I know this has been a problem for them and like other places in Europe for a while where they have like these really old villages that mm-hmm. are pretty much like, I don't want to say abandoned, but like people aren't wanting to move there because there's no work around yep. there and the the houses are really old. So it takes a lot to like maintain it, one of the, you know, maintain one of those houses and fix it up. But um, I they were saying that they think this is like a good opportunity to kind of bring people in to maybe these villages that people are leaving because, you know, they're sort of, I don't know, they're, they're so old that there's like no industry there almost in a way. Yeah. And um, I, I agree. I think it's a good opportunity for that. And, you know, another thing I was I kind of on the, a lot those same lines. Another thing I was thinking about too was um, I was listening to a lot of people talk about like on just on TV shows, like about how young, you know, like younger people don't want to go back to the office and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a big part of that is things like the commute and also kind of, and I've read a lot about this too, like how, because for the last like century or so, we've been so concentrated in big cities because that's where all the jobs are. Now also like the real estate in those cities is extremely expensive. So if you're, if you're now like a young person, let's say you're head, you know, working at an office building in a place like San Francisco, it's like, okay, well, the real estate in that area is extremely expensive. So if you can't afford to live there, then you're going to have to live, you know, an hour away and then commute. (laughs) And so yeah, it's like, and I feel like, um, in a way it's like, you know, I don't know if people, of like the older generations necessarily recognize this problem because it maybe wasn't as bad for them in a way like the that it was easier to get a place that was closer to the office um and now that's like another issue and kind of in a way I think remote work sort of eases that a little bit because it, yeah. you know at the same time like I think the Bay Area is like a kind of perfect example in a way that is ex- extreme but like the housing there's very expensive and a lot of people that live there don't really work for a lot of these companies so right. there's no places yeah. for the workers to go so I think I, I I saw a story some time ago and th- this this was a while ago and there were actually two in the same year uh that were terrifying almost there was a, a guy who was working at one of the tech companies in the in the Silicon Valley, really big one, um, and he was getting paid what looks like on paper really good money to work there, uh, but he couldn't afford a house, so he bought a van and he was like living in the van and taking showers in the the company gym and but he was living in the van in the parking lot, <laughs> and he's like I can't afford a house here. If I did, that's all I would be spending my money on. Yeah. And the work he was doing was him sitting at a computer. <laughs> like, 
all he needs is an internet connection and a decent computer. He doesn't have to be in Silicon Valley. Like it's, there was another story about an intern with the, some segment of the United Nations over in Geneva that actually wound up putting a tent uh, <laughs> on the front yard <laughs> of the big UN building in Geneva because he also, he, he couldn't afford housing remotely close to where he was supposed to be interning. Uh, so I, I always like these kind of protest moments <laughs> and I, I think remote work and, and building in the online community or, or even if you're not in the online community, building service-based businesses that allow you to have location freedom. I think all of these are like subtle forms of protest against the whole work nine to five for 40 years for the same company vibe that I, it's just not realistic anymore. Yeah. And I think people are eager to seek out alternatives because, um, yeah, like we were just saying, it's like, it's not sustainable in a way, or it's not, you know, people either don't want to spend all their money on housing or commute two hours a day. So they, they're seeking out alternatives. And then in a way it's like the, I think companies are starting to realize like, you're going to have to, in a way, compete with the employees, maybe even starting their own business, it, depending on what they yep. do. But because um, I, w- I was reading that with Apple where a lot of their employees didn't want to go back to the office. But then I think it kind of just depends on what you're doing there. But like if you're something like a designer, like a UX designer, it's like, well, you could just freelance. And if you have that experience of like, oh, I used to work at Apple, that, um, <laughs> you know, that yeah. that's a lot of... Some uh, doors are open for yeah, you pretty quickly once so, you've got that big name under your belt. Exactly. So it's not only like, do you have to compete with companies that are fine with their employees being remote, but also even just the employees freelancing or going out on their own. So um, I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about. But uh, but yeah, I think, I, I definitely think, yeah, housing is part of it. But I do think kind of remote work yeah. is sort of a solution. And I do think that's why some tech companies are like embracing it in some ways because they realize like, yeah, like there's there, I mean, I know in the Bay Area, it's been a problem for a while where the companies realize like there is not enough housing for all the workers we have. And right. they were trying to build, I don't know, they were doing more to like try and encourage building, but I feel like maybe they're fine with this being a solution to, you know, at least like with some of their workforce, I think it just depends on what your job is. Yeah, I think I was actually in New York for a couple of years before we went down to Brazil. And so we saw, and it was there throughout the pandemic. So we saw a huge part of this just, you know, on the other side of the country, right? Um, And a lot of the tech companies there, of course, during the pandemic went to full remote work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Google specifically actually was like, no, you're, you're all coming back to the office at some point. But they've asked folks to come back to the office, depending on like what their team does. They, they segmented it out in a way that kind of made sense to me. So I, I have a lot of friends who, instead of spending $3,000 on a studio in Brooklyn that still requires a 45-minute commute to their office, they've picked up houses, full houses mm-hmm. that are maybe a two-hour commute away, but now they only have to commute in once a week instead of five times. So they're totally fine with it. I think giving people that flexibility, whether you're trying to retain your own employees as a big company or whether you're trying to build your own business in a way that makes you happy and makes you feel like you want to, you know, continue doing things this way. I think that's crucial for everybody to try to seek out, to try to remember. Totally. And I guess kind of on along those lines, like, um, how would you say that, you know, running this business yourself helps you relate to your clients as online business owners? 
Sure. Well, I mean, apart from the the part of, you know, I'm in the trenches with you. I curse Instagram algorithm updates <laughs> every day with you. Me and TikTok getting fights every once in a while when my views drop for a couple of weeks. <laughs> like, I fully understand this. Um, but it's trying to be this this virtual firm. Well, no, not trying, being this virtual firm uh, means so much of what I what I do, so much of of how we try to create a client experience so much of how we try to resolve issues is is technology based like most online business owners um so i think having when you're working with any kind of like white collar professional especially those of us who are typically from like very conservative industries right your lawyers your cpas um I can't tell you how many folks I've gone to that they're like, well, I went to a lawyer and a couple of years ago anyway. They didn't know what TikTok was. Yeah. They were like, they don't know what HubSpot is. They like and I'm like, you can't have a fruitful conversation. You can't build a real strategy around what a business wants to do if you don't have at least a cursory understanding of the systems and the processes and the tech that they're working with. The reality is I'm working with the same systems and processes of tech as online business owners because I am one. And I, I think the reality is a, a lot of how I try to work with folks is on long-term relationships because I 100% believe um, that if somebody knows your business and understands it, they can help you actually prevent problems. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the beauty of having long-term relationships with folks. But just like doctors, you're not going to go see a foot doctor for your heart problems. Yeah. The foot doctor can probably say like, yep, those are heart problems. You know, you should eat, I don't know, less red meat. You should drink more water and get more cardio. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. They can give you that high level moment, but they're not going to be able to actually help you like nail it down, fine tune it, get to the point where you're preventing issues. You're going to have to go see the specialist and we're the same way. So yeah. Finding someone who knows what you're talking about is a really good start. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess too. What would what would what are some of the most common legal blind spots that you see with a lot of the online business owners that you work with? Sure. Um, so this one, the the first one that I really see that's big uh, crosses over into tax a bit, and a lot of the online business owners, uh, when they're selling across state lines, uh, if they're selling physical products or even printing out digital products and sending them. They're not keeping up with the sales tax, um, which can prove problematic once you get big enough. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing it from when you're small, it's going to be a pain to do it when you're bigger um, because every state has a different sales tax and you have to remit that sales tax to all the different states. Like, oh. yeah, and it's it's a lot. There's there's actually a company online, um, Tax Jar, mm -hmm. that helps people do this automatically. But it's it's one of those things of like, you don't know it until you get the letter from some state saying you owe us a bunch of money. And you're like, oh, God, why? Yeah. <laughs> um, or they'll turn on requiring sales tax and then not send it back to the state. Right. And they're in their purchasing system. Mm -hmm. There's normally a function where you can, like, say, apply sales tax or not. Yeah. Or they don't understand whether they're supposed to apply sales tax to digital products or not, which changes for every state. Yeah, that yeah. seems. Yeah, I, I know that is kind of a lot to think about because I would assume like if you're selling products. Well, okay. If you're selling it through a third-party site, like let's say um, like you're selling products on Etsy, I would assume Etsy mm -hmm. probably pays 
that. But then if you're selling it on your own website, then... Yeah, your own website is definitely... That's always going to get trickier. Once you start getting away from platforms, you're losing their expertise because they somebody there thought about it if it's a big enough platform yeah um well the same thing you can run into like your email management system Mm -hmm. right uh the bigger email platforms will require you to have for example double Mm opt-in they'll require you to put your your address at the bottom of your email these things are requirements of federal law Mm -hmm. but if you're just sending out cold emails from your gmail account Gmail's not asking you to do that. They assumed you did it right. But if you're operating through that email management system, they're going to make sure that you're doing it right. So it's nice to have that kind of support sometimes. Um, So looking for kind of built-in support, even if you're not totally aware it's there, that's useful. Or or if you're going to go do something on your own, making sure you ask for the right advice beforehand. Yeah, totally. Because I feel like that's one thing that's good to do. Yeah. Early on, like you were saying, like you don't want to be making a mistake and not realizing it. And then until it's too late. (laughs) I mean, because the trick is, I I think contracts are are a great example of this. Getting custom contracts, it does cost some money. I'm not going to lie. But a single, a single lawsuit, even if it's in just like small claims, especially if you're doing like custom services, that's already more, it's five times the cost of the contract. Yeah. Just pay for the contract. <laughs> I promise it will save you money. If not in the next six months, it will save you money over the course of, of your business. Um, the one the one that I see a lot that, uh, that kind of kills me because folks know they need to do it. They just don't know when and they put it off mm-hmm. um, is, is registering the names of their, their things, getting that trademark. Yeah. Um, Because a lot of folks, they're like, oh, well, it's not big enough yet. Uh, No one's going to do this. And they just, they open it up. They're like, I'll do it later. That's fine. And maybe you get lucky. Maybe you do. Maybe you can go process it, like make the registration later and get it and everything will be fine. The problem is it's not just the registration and getting the name. It's also making sure that the name that you thought of that you like isn't stepping on somebody else's toes, that somebody else didn't already take that name. Mm. Yeah. Because what I what I see a lot is somebody will spend five years building up a brand, building up a service, building up a program. And they're and they get to the point they're like, okay, I'm making enough money now. It's real. I'm gonna go get the trademark and claim my stuff. And right inevitably, right after they meet with a trademark lawyer, they get a letter from some other trademark lawyer who is not the one they met with saying, You're using my client's brand. Stop now and pay us. $25,000 for the use of it, for what you've made off of it the past two years. Okay, yeah. thanks. Bye. <laughs> Dang. Oh, man. That's, yeah, that's that's a good point. Because I, I guess that leads into one question I had, which is like, what should business owners trademark? And um, why is it important? You should trademark anything you're afraid of losing. Mm, okay. You should trademark anything that is uniquely yours, that your customers, that your clients, that your people are like, Oh, yeah, of course, that's what they're known for, that they associate with you. Um, what that typically looks like is there's a few different ways that, that you can do it. You can create this larger brand that like is the first word or the first name and all the products and programs and services and everything that you offer. Um, a good example of that is like Apple, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously they trademarked Apple. But Apple has all these different things, right? iCloud, iPhone, I, 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 I. 
And so they trademarked Apple. And that's a it, but everything is the Apple iPhone, Apple iCloud, Apple iPad. You've created that umbrella, at least, where all of these products are known to be yours as long as you're using that top level thing, that Apple word. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for folks who know they're going to be doing a lot of things and they want it all to be associated with a singular brand. That works really well for them. And then as they get the money, they can start claiming those little things underneath the, the iPhone, the iPad, iCloud. Um, for folks who are a little more uh, budget restrained, then I say pick out your most profitable thing. Start there. Yeah. Start somewhere, right? Pick out the thing that's going to hurt if you have to rebrand. Yeah. And um, I think that's that's probably the best way to think of it. If somebody came to you tomorrow and said you had to change the names of absolutely everything in your business that's publicly facing, what would hurt the most? Ooh, yeah. We'll make sure that you've got that one as soon as possible. I see. And then what if it was something like, okay, like you're like a service-based business. Let's say you're like a mindset coach and your sure. business is like just your name, like Melissa Rittenhouse Mindset Coach, is that something I'd have to trademark? Or or would I would it be easy to think like, well, no one's going to take that unless they have my my same name. And what are the odds of that? <laughs> so. Right. So when you're using your name as a brand, when you're building personal brands, mm-hmm. it does get a little, a little trickier. Um, if you're doing your full name, you're the only person that has the right to your, your full name. Mm-hmm. So on that, you're you're kind of okay. Like if somebody tried to go register Melissa Rittenhouse with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office tomorrow, it would be quite easy for you to go in and be like, yeah, that's my name. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. That's, that's fine enough. But if you tried to just do like Melissa's money mindset, that may not be a strong enough thing for you. Yeah. Um, and uh, let me explain that a bit further. When it comes to getting a trademark, there's two things to be considered. One, can we even trademark what it is that you want to put forward to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office? And there is a range, there is a scale, actually, of how they view uh, what should be trademarkable, Mm -hmm. essentially. Um, And starting with things that are descriptive or generic generally don't warrant, they don't justify trademark protection. Um, So let me think, let me think. Oh, uh, there's a good example. Uh, Seattle's best coffee. Yeah. The point that's initially when Seattle's best coffee opened, it would have been really hard for Seattle's best coffee to be like, yeah, nobody else can use the phrase Seattle's best coffee. Because there are obviously other good coffees in Seattle. Yeah. Right? And somebody's going to want to call them the best. And that's not... So part of that is we don't allow things that are super descriptive or generic like that to be trademarked because you're preventing somebody else from using them. Mm -hmm. Right? Because it should be uniquely identified to you. Now that Seattle's Best Coffee has been going for a few decades, people assume they're they're someone that they are unique and they know that is a company when folks are speaking about it. So... Now they get to do what they want a bit with it. Now they can claim it. But that's you that's decades in kind of strategy. Okay. Um the ideal thing to do when you're coming up with a brand name or something you want to trademark is to come up with what we call a fanciful word. And it's basically that means the word doesn't exist in a dictionary mm-hmm. in the English language or any other. 
Like, you, you have made something up entirely. Um, but I know a lot of branding folks will tell you don't do that because then they don't know what you sell. Yeah. But right? isn't that too why a lot of startups spell their company names really, <laughs> like, kind of weird? absolutely why yeah. they do weird stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I think what works really well when you're looking to trademark is going back and forth between suggestive and arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for small businesses who do need people to understand what they do once they've seen it. Like, I would love for you to come up to me with a made up word because it does make my life easier. But I understand the branding reality of you got to make money and people need to understand what it is that I do. Yeah. Um, So what you'll see is for the arbitrary ones, folks can take a word that they just that they just like that just fits the brand aesthetic that just fits the vibe, Mm -hmm. but isn't directly related to the product. Okay. right. Um, and so a good example of that is Dove. Mm-hmm. Dove has both chocolate and soap. And those are two distinct companies and they're two distinct trademarks. But Dove has nothing to do with chocolate or soap. Yeah. When well, they know tra- what it is. Right. When they trademark, do they trademark themselves as either like Dove soap or Dove chocolate to have that distinction? So when you trademark, you actually claim, uh, we call them international classes, Mm -hmm. but realistically, it's just a category. Okay. We have a bunch of categories and you claim your word in your category. Oh, I see. Which is why things like Dove soap and Dove chocolate are allowed to exist. Because we know they're different categories. And the the, the, the question is that the Patent and Trademark Office asks is, would someone get confused if they saw these two products next to each other mm. would they think they were from the same company okay you, you probably don't think <laughs> the chocolate is from the same company as the soap bar yeah probably not <laughs> so they're not they're not too worried about that they're not worried about a, a consumer about a person in the grocery store getting confused and like buying chocolate when they meant to buy soap yeah right? makes sense um and then you get down to things that are called suggestive marks that mm-hmm. are that's also really helpful. These get a little harder to trademark sometimes, depending mm-hmm. on how popular it is. Um, and Netflix is an amazing example of this. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times you'll see this when people take words that are vaguely related to what it is that they do. But they don't actually describe it. Right. Like Netflix is movies on the Internet. Yeah. Netflix. Mm-hmm. I get it from the name, but it's not inherent. It's not movies on the internet services. <laughs> yeah. right? It's not streamingmovies.com. It's, it's, it's something that's a little, a little less direct. Yeah. Um, so when you can create names that fit into those, and mm-hmm. then we go check and see if they're available, that's the best way to do it. I also, in general, when it comes to names, I recommend people not bother with it mm-hmm. because personal names Unless you're on like influencer status, like Kim Kardashian level, your name cannot move on past you. Yeah. It will always require you. <laughs> Whereas things like Netflix, I don't I don't remember the guy who started Netflix. No. Do you? No. I don't even know. I don't I don't think he is I don't know if he got bought out or if he's like still part of the company either. That's a good question. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the point, right? Is that your company can go on beyond you and whether you want to sell it, whether you want to, to just back away from the day to day and keep owning it, like, like hire somebody to do your operations and just be the owner. Yeah. Right. That's possible. 
but that's really only possible when you're not using your name directly. So I tend to push people away from that um, for all of those reasons. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Um, let's let's go on to contracts. Um, what what are some contracts that you say are like a must have for any online business owner? For any online business owner, so so much in that it's it's funny to me because we've lumped this world together because it feels small compared to the rest of business, but there's so many things that online business owners do. Yeah. Um, so, and, and so I got to break that up a little bit more. Anyone, I'll put it this way. Anyone who has a website that is collecting any kind of information, if you have so much as a contact form on your website, mm-hmm. you need a privacy policy. Okay. It, it's just, and that's an easy one. Yeah. I, there are in lawyers templates. There's a bunch of lawyers that are like me that are operating in the online space. A lot of us have template stores. You can grab a privacy policy from one of us and like almost copy and paste. You have to do like 15 minutes of work to get it up. And that's just one of those things that one, at a certain point, depending on what state you're in, you actually do need it anyway, or the state can get really mad at you. Mm -hmm. Virginia's actually got a $10,000 fine for people who don't do it right. Once they get to the stage, they, that Virginia needs it. Yeah. California is really aggressive about it. If you've got people in Europe, if you're operating internationally, like just get the privacy policy. That one's an easy one. Yeah. Um, and I say that one because it's the easiest one to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next most important one is always going to be some kind of terms around your purchasing. And now that depends on what you're selling, right? If you're selling courses, you probably need a full agreement about the use of your course and the pricing and refunds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would always make sure that's there. In most states, you your refund policy has to be visible before your client buys. Mm-hmm. And that can be through clicking a link. That can be you have to have them do an e-signature on it before they get it as part of your proposal. Um, but normally, if they don't see that, it becomes very hard to enforce it. So mm-hmm. if they come back to you and say, I want all my money back, and you're like, no, if you're fighting a court or the bank, if they're dealing with a chargeback, you need to be able to show them that refund policy. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who's setting up payment plans, depending on what, like, even and physical services or courses, right? If you've got payment plans, you've got to have your late fee stuff in there. You've got to have, again, because courts and banks won't enforce it unless you've got it there. Um, so anything around payments, I, I always want folks to make sure that's the first one they have, even if it's not a full-blown contract, even if it's just some bits of like, this is how you pay me. This is how I expect to be paid. This is when I expect to be paid. This is what happens if I don't get paid. Mm -hmm. Um, those are crucial. And then for so many people in the, the online business community, uh, virtual assistants, right? Our teams are, are all over the world. Um, if not at least all over the country, if not all over the world, uh, and definitely having some really clear language and contracts around whether these people are your employees, your contractors, what you owe them, making sure that what they've created for you is owned by your company, mm-hmm. call this work for hire. Yeah. Um, and then normally having some kind of like non-disclosure if they have access to client lists, sensitive, uh, data, uh, future marketing plans to make sure they can't run off and take it to some other company if things go south. Those are all really good starting points. Um, there's a litany of things. I, I mean, the list can go on forever, but that's that's a good starting point. Yeah, for sure. I know there's so much to get into with that because, I mean, contracts, I feel like even if you're maybe just a freelancer, not a business owner, it's like a big thing. Um, 
to pay attention to. And I, I know too, I've been like getting more into UGC content, UGC content creators, and they're saying things about, I was reading a lot <laughs> online about um, just ter- like reading contracts in terms of like how brands can use things, work yeah. you do for them and stuff like that. So yeah. I guess that's always like a good question is like, whether you're a brand or you're someone who is a work for hire, like what steps should you take when signing contracts? Should you know what to look out? Should you just kind of maybe talk to a lawyer and have things to look out for when you sign contracts? Or should you maybe find a lawyer to look over contracts? Even if you're someone who's like work for hire and maybe you sign contracts sure. pretty often, sure. What what would you say is like the best strategy for that? So I think moving from like big business down to I'm just starting out freelancer. Mm-hmm. If if you are a massive business and not even massive, I my honest to God belief, if you have crossed the like two hundred and fifty thousand dollar mark mm-hmm. and you don't have a lawyer on retainer, mm-hmm. your business won't last more than three years. You're gonna get sued. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that one's harsh. I know that's harsh, but I've seen it time and time again. People think they can like piece it together themselves. And once you're at that point, things are so big, they're starting to get complex. It's not, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're below that and things are still kind of growing, then I think it's a great idea to, it depends, right? If you're the one sending out the contract, go get one custom contract for you and tell them, I'm using this as a template. I need to be able to adjust it from client to client, depending on services, right? I mean, because this is where this one's more specific. Mm-hmm. If you're selling a product or a course, you can kind of get a one-off thing and 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 let it go. Um, but for services, be like, I need a template that I can adjust without having to call you every time. Mm-hmm. Tell me what I can mess with and what I can't. Mm-hmm. And any decent lawyer should explain to you what, the, what every clause in your contract is doing. Um, and what I generally recommend to people, particularly once they're at this stage, is And what I do with my own clients, actually, I'm like, okay, what are all the problems you've had in the past three months, six months, 12 months? What would have been a better outcome for you? And I take that list and I make sure the contract covers it. And I explain to them how it does. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're not getting custom stuff and you're having someone just review it, go to them with that same list and be like, if this happened, what would happen according to that contract? Yeah. So that way you understand how you're protected and how you're not. Um. For folks that are really just starting out or the ones that are really receiving the contracts, I think it's a great idea to go have a chat with a lawyer. Go pay for an hour of our time and just be like, can you explain this to me so I know what to look for? And do that like once a year. Yeah, I definitely think that's enough. Yeah, (laughs) I think so, too, if you're like um, even for like employees, because like employment contracts, like I feel like if you especially if you think you're going to be at that job for a long time, it's definitely worth it to have a lawyer look at the contract. So, you know, like, hey, this is what, you know, this is what you can and can't do. This is what I mean, sometimes, too, it's like you want to know what it's going to be like in terms of like after you leave, if you do leave or like, I I don't know. It's just it's always helpful. (laughs) No, it's great. and I. I can't tell you the number of friends who have come to me of just like, hey, I think I'm going to quit my job, but I had to sign some stuff when I joined on. Yeah. And I go back and look at it and I'm like, you can quit your job, but you're going to lose A, B, and C, and you can't go work for this person, that person, and that person. That job you got hired for, you need their permission to go to. 
And they're like, oh, and I'm like, did you not check this out when you signed on? Yeah, I know. And I think and they don't. Yeah. And it, nobody does. Yeah. Right. I know the answer to it. It's frustrating to me because I know what can happen. But the reality is nobody does. Um, and it would like everything that, that in my world, at least. If you fix it in the beginning, it is <laughs> so much cheaper. It's so much easier. It is so much less stressful. And that goes from everything from like being the employee to starting up a new business to trying to build a new one to scale one, all of that. It's the the same principle applies. Yeah. Cause I definitely think that's like one thing for sure to keep in mind, whether you're like for employees or freelancers is like, see if they have anything about working with competitors, because then I think that really makes a difference on like whether or not it's worth it for you to work with them. Cause it's like, okay, if you're going to have a contract, like let's say you are like a, like a UGC creator or something, it's like, sure. Do you, do, is it so worth it to work with this brand that you can't work with their competitors? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, that's like for you to decide, but you want to know. It that. is, right? <laughs> you know? But yeah, I mean, if if someone's asking for like exclusivity or non-compete or anything like this, these are the words you would look for in the contract. Like just control F that stuff. <laughs> if you see it, some red flags should go off. Yeah. Um, But if you see those things, you have to make sure the price matches the restrictions they're putting on you. Whether that be as a content creator, as an employee, even as a business owner, right? If you're hiring somebody, you should make sure that what you're offering to hire them for matches the restrictions you're putting on them and that the restrictions make sense. Yeah. I can't tell you how many Mm -hmm. times I've seen uh, employment agreements where, especially people starting off, right? There's a lot of growth that happens when you grow into your business, right? There's a lot of... um, insecurity that has to go out the door as you get above a certain level. But when that insecurity is controlling, a lot of times I'll see folks put on, you can't work for any competitor within a hundred mile radius. And you're like, you can't do that to people. Yeah. (laughs) And and they're putting this on their cashier. Yeah. Yeah. Do you care that somebody goes and like plays cashier somewhere else? Really? Yeah. This is not a concern. Come on. They're like, but they saw things. And you're like, so did every customer that walked into your store. Yeah. I saw nothing more than that, right? Like make the, 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 the contracts, make your strategies, make your risks match the reality of what's actually going on. Yeah. Totally. Um, and a lot of the times without that knowledge, without that support, folks just grab the first thing they see and assume it's fine or they just sign and they don't look. But having that knowledge, having that support, having somebody come in and be like, this is what's happening. That can help folks make sure that their that their reality is matching the stuff that they're actually putting out legally. It also makes sure that their values are properly reflected in in the 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 culture that's being created by the legal documents and the legal strategies that are around their business. Yeah, totally. I I completely agree. It's like, I mean, I understand like you want to protect. Um, you know, your own proprietary stuff. And there's, I think there's ways to do that without making people feel like if they leave, you're going to ruin their life or something. Absolutely. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I guess like kind of my last question too, is like, let's say if you, you did do, you know, you have the contracts in place, you do something like you create a course and you've, you see, you come across another course online and it, you're pretty sure like, okay, this person copied my sure. trademark course that my that had a you know what would be the next steps and like how how do you know if it's a solid enough case to be like they are copying my material and mm-hmm. how much do are do you know it's a solid case or and how much is it like 
okay, maybe it's just generic, like info that right. someone could have come to on their own. So uh, like, like everything in legal, um, the next steps depend on what your first steps were. Mm-hmm. If you trademarked the name of your course, we have one set of steps. If you copyrighted the content of your course, if you uploaded your video files to the U.S. Copyright Office and claimed that, we also have another set of actions. If you did both, great. You're in the absolute best protection you can have. Mm-hmm. If you did none of those, well, we may have less options. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So let's say best case scenario, you both trademarked the name and registered the content of your course with the U.S. Patent Copyright Office and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Awesome. Best position possible. Ideally, at that point, you still have the lawyer that worked with you on the copyright and the trademark bit. You call them up and say, hey, there's this thing. Can you send a letter? And that's going to be the first step for for most of us. We're going to send a letter to whoever the creator of that that course is, that program, um, and be like, this stuff's trademarked and copyright and you need that same letter that you would have gotten if you did if you were using somebody else's stuff that says mm-hmm. take it down mm-hmm. uh or face the consequences we're going to we're going to start that <laughs> we can still send that letter if you haven't gotten trademark or copyright protections but we don't have a lot of ways to really back it up mm-hmm. apart from what the platform that you've put it on will allow us to do um and then that means we have to go look at the terms and conditions of the platform you've put it on so if you're using Kajabi, we're going to have one set of options, right? If you're using Coursera, we're going to have another set of options. Yeah. And that just depends on where, what platform you've chosen. Um, some are good for some things. Some are good for others. There's no unique answer on that that I can give you that like, this is the one to use. They just, they, they all have their pluses and their minuses. Um, so, I mean, your, your first steps for that, if, if you, if you want to avoid that situation or, you can't avoid someone copying you, but you can't avoid feeling panicked mm-hmm. when they do. And if you want to avoid that feeling of panic, you can trademark your name and copyright your material. Nice. If you're cool with risking it and you're like, ah, it's fine if they do it. And some people have this opinion, right? Of like, you know, the secret sauce to my program, to my course is me. Mm-hmm. Nobody can copy it, even if they copy the name. Yeah. That's, that's not wrong. Uh, I, I fully agree. Like whatever you're doing, even if someone's copying it, they're always going to be behind you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely don't think people that would copy like material from a course are probably the most innovative. So there's that, but yeah, I mean, you still there's, there's something there in the market that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so worried about on that, but there is the moment of if they start mm-hmm. doing that, what happens if they get a, a URL, uh, the URL that's similar to your website? Yeah. And somebody accidentally goes there and someone's trying to buy your, by the way, this has happened many times. Someone is trying to buy your course. They're trying to buy your program. They're trying to buy even your product. And something, somehow someone's bought an ad, someone bought a similar domain name, someone opened up a spoof profile, right? Mm -hmm. A spammer profile on any of the social media apps. And someone's looking for you because they heard, you know, your friends referred to them, blah, blah, blah. And they find this person that's spoofing you and they buy their stuff and their stuff is not the quality that you would put out, right? It's not something you would have approved of and that's why it's not yours. That's why it's this little impersonator running off in the corner. And now they go find you and they leave bad reviews about you. Yeah. Totally. For something that you didn't do. <laughs> yeah. That's frustrating. 
But if you have those those trademark and copyright protections, you can properly shut that down. If yeah. you don't, it becomes that much harder. Yeah, that's a good thing to keep in mind too, because I didn't really think about that, but you might have people like impersonating you oh, yeah. and not... Because I, I was just thinking oh, yeah. if they were trying to take your material and pass it off as their own. But yeah, if someone's actually impersonating you, you definitely want to nip that in the bud because who knows? I mean, who knows? Like, what if they're, I mean, it could be like a complete scam where they're trying to like get people's, you know, credit card info or something like yeah. that. And you don't want any, th- anything you, you with don't you don't want to that be to be on your name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay, cool. Well, this, I definitely learned a lot. This was super informative. And I feel like we could, go on even longer but I you know I have to, I have to kind of end the interview for time but it was super informative so I hope everyone checks out your website and your social media profiles so I just want to leave it to you for any final thoughts and where people could find you thank you so much yeah. um so yeah I mean once again my name is Samantha Bradshaw I'm the founder of inline legal and you can find me on uh Instagram, TikTok, theoretically stuff goes to Facebook, but like, I don't check that y'all. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Inline Legal. Uh, and yeah, we share tons of tips like this weekly. Um, and I, I would love to help you guys however I can. So if you've got questions, let me know. Awesome. Here. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Melissa. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Entrepreneur Skate Pod. You can find us on Instagram at Entrepreneur Skate Pod, and you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Melissa underscore Rittenhouse. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Entrepreneur Skate Pod. Don't forget to check in with us next week for an all new episode. For more information on our guest, please go to the podcast description of this episode. Also, don't forget to check out clips and updates on our next guest on our Instagram at Entrepreneur Escape Pod. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Melissa underscore Rittenhouse and check out my website at MelissaRittenhouse.co. Thanks and see you next week.